rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. You've almost certainly heard too much about Brexit. And if you haven't, where on earth have you been? But what about Orxit? It's not Orexit, it's Orxit. It already has a name. It's a plan in its infancy. It's barely barely been born, but we're already giving it one of those names. That's how it works, isn't it? Let's learn more about it now, shall we? Because until it became this month, councillors in Orkney, a group of islands off the northeast coast of mainland Scotland, voted to explore a breakaway from the UK, even if it means joining Scandinavia. Orkney councillors are looking at pursuing greater autonomy in the UK and investigating whether they can go through a relationship with Denmark, Norway or Iceland. The council leader, James Stoll- Orkney has deep roots with the Nordic countries. It was part of the Nordic Empire for hundreds of years. On the street in Orkney, people often mention and people come up to me and say, when are we going back to Norway? But this is more than just ancient history. The voters tapped into some of the long, simmering anger held by remote island communities who feel forgotten by Edinburgh and by London. We have so many areas where we feel the governments in the UK, both of them are failing us dreadfully. So how could Orkney sever its ties with the UK? And could the row hurt the SNP at the next election? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Luke Jones. Today, for better or Norse, why Orkney wants a divorce. I'm Mike Wade. I'm senior reporter with The Times in Scotland. I'm based in Edinburgh, where I've been working for the paper since 2007. And I've had the very good fortune to go to Orkney several times in that period and to many other Scottish islands too. Why do you keep being drawn to Orkney? What's the what's the charm? Obviously we go for the stories, but there is something easy to love about Orkney. It has a peculiar kind of sense. It almost feels to me like an English county, some part of rural England, but of course what it is is an island archipelago of about 70 islands. But the actual, particularly the town of Kirkwall, where I've been over the last few days, has a, an enclosed feel. It has a very old medieval centre and very handsome cathedral. It's a great place to visit. So take us back to the 4th of July this year. Independence Day, of course, for many Americans. An important vote on Orkney, though. Who called this vote? Where was it? What surprised, I think, a lot of people in Orkney was that James Stockton, the leader of the council, called the vote. It is eight o'clock. It's Friday the 30th of June. This is Good Morning Scotland. And after Brexit, could Oxit be on the cards? We'll hear more about moves to give Orkney more autonomy from the rest of the UK. First, let's get... And he made the announcement of the vote effectively in a local radio interview. Or 
Iceland. The council leader, James Stockin, is with me now. Good morning. Good morning. Well, we be- well, I believe that this is the right time to take it to our council for the council. It definitely decide. caught people by surprise. And what he did with his motion was to suggest that Orkney was not getting a fair deal from governments, by which he really meant the Scottish government more than the UK mm. government. And perhaps Orkney should be looking at its Nordic past, its Nordic connections for other models of governance that might do it better. That argument has been around before, but somehow through luck, or design, he chose his moment particularly well, just as the Scottish Parliament went into recess, just as there's an appetite for different kinds of stories, and it went around the world. Local politicians on Britain's Orkney Islands say they're considering what they're calling alternative forms of government. On the Orkneys says it's not getting enough funding and that... The motion aims to explore the historic Nordic connections of the islands. Orkney was under Norwegian and Danish control until 1472. So it makes global headlines and then a few days later they hold a vote. Good morning, members. This is the general meeting of the Council on 4th of July 2023. So I now invite Councillor Stockin to speak to his motion. Thank you, Convener and members. I'm going to speak from my heart today, not from my head. And I want you to think clearly about what is in the motion and where we need to go as a community. So what do I want to know from this exercise in autonomy and alternative government structures? What would it look like if we didn't have to bid into government funding pots and we would save that exercise, that industry of paperwork? What would it look like if we had control of fishing waters, that rich resource around us? What would it look like if we had true agency over the energy produced here? The options around which this notice of motion revolve range from that which is arguably reasonable namely crown dependency status, through to the more ambitious, such as becoming a British overseas territory, through to the, quite frankly, bizarre fantasy of becoming a self-governing territory of Norway, but there's likely to be a Pandora's box of unintended curses on the communities of Orkney. And they vote in support of James Stockin, 15 to 6, Mike. Can you explain to me what they actually passed, because they're not saying, let's go and be a part of Norway. They're saying, what, they want to look at options, including Norway? That is exactly it. I'm looking for the actual wording. Orkney Council should now explore options for alternative models of governance that provide provide greater fiscal security and economic opportunity for the islands of Orkney. Those investigations to include Nordic connections Crown dependencies and other options for greater subsidiarity and autonomy to be presented to the community for consideration. So, what about the Nordic option and what it talks about as being its Nordic connections? If we look to history, what are the Nordic connections? Orkney has an incredibly long Viking history. One Norwegian lord founded a church in Orkney. It became an important trading base within what you could call the Viking Empire between Denmark, Norway, Sweden. 
and people do feel a connection to that still. And people like Stockham look to the future with an eye on the past. Stockham privately afterwards, talking to me, said that we see ourselves as a stepping stone to the Arctic. His deputy, who supported the motion, is Heather Woodbridge. She's 29. She's from North Ronaldsay, which is the most northerly populated island in the Orkney archipelago. Studied as an 18-year-old at a college just north of Bergen and speaks Norwegian fluently. There are two other people in the council who speak Norwegian fluently. The Orkney flag is almost identical to the Norwegian flag with a yellow ground instead of a white ground on the cross. Orcadians celebrate Norwegian Constitution Day. They do so with a march called the Tog, led by pipers, which goes from Kirkwall Harbour up to the excellent cathedral, where last year, Councillor Woodbridge addressed the crowd in Norwegian. It's a strange connection, and it came home to me much more strongly this time than it's ever done before. So that's the the, the hopes then and the connections. But in terms of the present day, where do the Orkney Islands actually fit in terms of the UK and how it's governed? How does political governance actually work? I think Orkney is emblematic of a much wider issue about how the Highlands and Islands in particular are governed, but how Scotland in general is governed. So Orcadians, and not just the politicians here, are very sceptical about centralisation. They do regard themselves as an island community and different, and other island communities also feel that. Now, it's the Scottish government who imposes most domestic rule on them, And the Scottish government under the SNP are an extremely centralising regime. It's perhaps not understood in England just how centralising their policies are. And that is causing increasing resentment across the Highlands and Islands because it's perceived that politicians in in the central belt, by which I mean the corridor between Edinburgh and Glasgow, Politicians and civil servants in that area, with no knowledge of the islands, are drawing up policies which favour urban communities, which are then imposed on these outlying communities. And it makes for problems. What's an example of that? I think most tellingly would be high protection marine areas, which was a policy which came out of the most recent agreement between the SNP and the Green Party, who were in coalition at Holyrood. High protection marine areas roughly proposed to outlaw economic activity in 10% of Scottish coastal waters. And those coastal waters were mainly perceived to be the grounds where the most famous Scottish delicacies come from. Scallops, brown crab, lobster, hand dives, sustainably fished. And these were going to be closed down to economic activity. This caused howls of rage. I remember a councillor on the Western Isles, the Hebrides, saying, you can tell that this policy has been drawn up by politicians in the central belts because they don't know what's going to happen. Every coastal community is going to close. So that was a, a really shocking example 
And that outrage is actually what led the Scottish government to having to drop this policy in the end, is that right? But the charge is still there, though, that it's not that Edinburgh politicians don't care about these communities. That's not the charge. The charge is that they don't understand their way of life to the extent that they will then include their concerns in legislation. Yeah, I think that's exactly the charge. Heather Woodbridge very much made this point. She has looked at that Norwegian constitution, Norwegian government, and she said to me, what they do in Norway when they're drawing up domestic policy is they start with their rural communities and look what their rural communities want. And by working out policy there, they roll that into the centre and and use the same policies in the centre. In Scotland, it's precisely the opposite. So it's not badness, as she put it, on the part of government. There's a lot of goodwill there, but they don't have, and she used a really buzz term here, the lived experience of islanders. You know, you hear that term lived experience about all sorts of groups, but she used it about islanders, and I thought it was very telling. Yeah, and obviously this isn't just the example that you gave there, scallops and brown crab and the rest. What are some of the other ones where... People on the Orkney Islands have felt that actually those in Edinburgh don't have their best interests at heart or don't understand their way of life. We haven't even begun to talk about the ferry service. A massive failure of the government and civil service to run the absolutely crucial ferry services when so many people in Scotland live on islands. It's crazy. Mm. The fleet is old. It's rusty. 30, 40-year-old rusty tubs. It's estimated it will take 400 million to 500 million to upgrade that fleet. The building of ferries 801 and 802 has been a shambles from start to finish. In fact, shambles is not a strong enough word. It's been a scandal. Six years late, three times over budget. It's about the failure of connections to the mainland. In some places, it's just disastrous for the economy. I mean... It's that kind of thing which the Scottish government hasn't been helping Orkney address. It has people shaking their heads because the service is going to fail eventually. A phrase like lifeline services can be used a little too easily, but in a place like Orkney, it really matters. It really matters. Imagine rolling out, as they did, the COVID vaccine to these tiny islands in the middle of nowhere and not having a reliable ferry service. It doesn't bear thinking about. And as part of this agitating for some new kind of governance amongst some people, just about stopping that kind of interference, or is it also about, as they must see it as well, unlocking some potential in Orkney and and letting it do more than it's currently being allowed to do as they'd see it? I think that's definitely true. So a wind farm is planned west of Orkney, Offshore wind farm with massive potential. I think it will supply 2 million homes. <laughs> there are 22,000 people living in Orkney, 2 million homes, <laughs> and produce hydrogen. And again, you know, you can see the Orcadians feel maybe, yeah, you know, maybe we should get a fair share of that. Another really intriguing, if tragic, consequence of climate change is the Northwest Passage. The Northwest Passage is the link from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Hmm. It's been the holy grail of explorers through North America for centuries. If you look at the NASA website, you can see the impact of climate change is making the Northwest Passage almost economically feasible. 
that ships will be able to sail from Japan, China, effectively through that passage and into the Atlantic, cutting thousands of miles of shipping times. And there are business people in Orkney saying, we could take advantage of this. Because is their point that ships, instead of having to go through the Panama Canal or down under South America, they'd come over the top yeah. and they'd come past Orkney? They would. And there are people in Orkney who are not fools, who are thinking, perhaps there's opportunity here. Business people thinking, some of the port facilities that have developed over the years around the oil industry, there are opportunities. Coming up, how could an Orkney-Norway alliance actually work in reality? And what does this tell us about the future of the SNP in the post-Sturgeon era? Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, it's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Crossroads wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across sheffield from the 31st of may to the 2nd of june so other podcasters that you'll be able to see include katie price Catherine ryan romash ranganathan and the original adam buxton but there's also a whole host of free fringe events family shows surprise acts and after parties that jane and i haven't yet been invited to i'm sure it's only a matter of time head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information Where does all of this is in, in the current political reality? Because when the SNP came into power in Holyrood in 2007, there were people, I understand it, in Orkney who were quite optimistic about plans to help island communities like those in Orkney. What happened? It's a good question, and it comes down to centralisation. So there are plenty of high ideals. The Scottish government passed the National Islands Plan, and they did so with quite a fanfare, saying this was a world-leading policy which would spread diversity and inclusion throughout the islands. It was full of the kind of progressive language that the SNP are good at. But what did it mean in practice? So the hopes indeed were high. The SNP, though, they have a unit called One Scotland, The thing is, Scotland is not one Scotland. Scotland is all kinds of different communities. So they put forward a national island plan saying, you are going to have all these rights. The communities will decide all these things. And then they impose policies like high protection marine areas, police Scotland. They impose these policies and they break their own pledge. The communities are not being empowered. They're not being empowered at all. So there is a national planning framework under consideration. It sounds very dry, but this is a theme that runs through that document like a golden thread, the 20-minute neighbourhood. 20-minute neighbourhood meaning everything. I'm sitting here in central Edinburgh. I should have everything within walking distance, basically, of my flat, and I'm very happy to say that probably have. Hmm. It's not a policy that works anywhere outside the central belt, apart from Aberdeen and Dundee, obviously. Right across the highlands, 
and definitely not in Orkney. You cannot go for a 20-minute walk and get everything you need. It's just not going to happen, I'm afraid. But it's out to consultation at the moment and could become planning law effectively. So councillors like Orkney are going to have to be extremely clever at redrafting legislation or tickling the legislation so that it works for them. So if they're all the reasons why many in, in Orkney might bristle at the, at the influence or control from Edinburgh, in terms of the plan to scope out other options of governance, the Norway option, in an ideal world for them, how would that actually work? What are they pointing to by way of an example? Curiously, when pressed, James Stockham, the leader of the council, came up with an example elsewhere in the Baltic, which was a place called Holland. A-L-A-N-D, and that's a little group of islands between Finland and Sweden. They are set up as an autonomous territory within Finland. So that means they can pass their own laws, basically. Hmm. They can't draw up foreign policy, but they have more control over what they do than the people in um, Kirkwall do. It's just a fact. So if that's their preferred option, that the people have agitating for this, on Orkney, what is the actual plan in terms of how this progresses? So they've won this vote saying that they're going to scope out this and other options, but to actually make it happen, is it clear what hoops they have to jump through? It isn't. And I I sat in the the, um, Kirkwall Hotel with Heather Woodbridge and I congratulated her on a big win. And I asked her, what will be your next big win? And she said, the next big win is to get all the information we possibly can. So it's a very low level. This is not, we're breaking away now. They've instructed their very hard-pressed officials to come out and research the consequences, the practicalities, the economics of all the options, like Norway, like Holland, like Guernsey, what's going to be best, or the status quo. Yes. And I guess in a smaller version of Edinburgh furiously banging on the door of Westminster saying, allow us a referendum to break away from the UK, sure. will Orkney have to bang on both the door of, of Holyrood and, and of Westminster to be allowed to do what they want to do? I mean, is that even clear yet? Well, the UK government ruled it out straight away, as did uh, the Norwegian government saying, this is an internal British matter. UK government effectively said, better together. And uh, Yusuf, the First Minister, doffed his hat towards Orkney. Well, first of all, uh, can I say that uh, we'll continue to work closely with Orkney uh, City Council. I was pleased to be at the But in a uh, remarkable live interview, he referred to the City of Orkney Council, which caused great hilarity in the streets of Kirkwall, I can assure you. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, it's tricky... I want more autonomy for our island communities. That's why I'm prepared to, for example, look at the Single Islands Authority model for the likes of Orkney. But uh, we'll continue to engage with Orkney. Uh, Like Orkney, uh, I believe that we are being failed actually by the Westminster government. If we had more autonomy, then of course the Scottish government could do more for our island communities, more for our remote and rural communities. And what about people on Orkney itself? Do we know which way that they will go? There was an initial laughter, but it's very interesting to see that the Orcadian, which is an extremely good newspaper too, it did a poll 
over the 24 hours following the vote, and it found a majority of the people it polled, which was about 2,000, which is about a tenth of the population, approved of what the council said. Just spinning right back to questions and issues raised earlier, I mean, the SNP do not do well on these islands. Orkney traditionally is extremely liberal, and, and these days it, has, it still has a liberal MSP and a liberal MP. It's quite a stronghold. So if that's the, the case then, can we read much into this in terms of what is currently happening with the SNP at Holyrood and Humza Youssef reaching 100 days of First Minister, having taken over from Nicola Sturgeon, but having a very difficult time on many fronts? Do you see this as yet another growing symptom of SNP discontent or is this almost a separate matter in itself? No, it's not a separate matter. All of those issues that we've highlighted, the fishing policy, the planning policy, there's a huge sense in Scotland, north of Perth. The motorway network effectively runs out at Perth. There's been a continual argument about a dual carriageway up the A9 through the Highlands. The SNP have never delivered any. It's absolutely symbolic of what's happening. The SNP are going to lose seats in these northern areas. It's just going to happen. And you can see various MPs have resigned at Westminster, say they're not standing again. The polls suggest that Labour's going to do better in the cities. It's because there's a disconnect now on this centralisation. And these failings are really coming home to roost. Put on top of that, the whole issue of Nicola Sturgeon's departure and the police investigation, these are not great times for the SNP. Yeah. Very finally, Mike, I think I've left the most important question to the end. What are we potentially going to be calling this? Is it Orksick? Is it Ork? I don't know. What's that? How are we spelling it? What are we calling it? The sub editor who did my headline did pretty well, I thought, with the breakaway <laughs> to the Arctic. Orksick, I suppose so. We'll get it yeah. going. We'll get it trending. Okay, excellent. We put the claims made in this episode to the Scottish Government and they told us... Local Government Empowerment Minister Joe Fitzpatrick said, We are committed to build a stronger relationship with local government, with mutual trust and respect at its core. Scottish Ministers look forward to working closely with Orkney Islands Council and other local partners to develop alternative governance arrangements on the Orkney Islands, which can demonstrate strong potential to improve outcomes for local people. This is just the start of the process, and we look forward to working further in the interests of all the people of Scotland. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Luke Jones, and my guest, Scotland's senior reporter at The Times, Mike Wade. You can read more of Mike's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. And if you're a subscriber, you can read more online about Mike's interviews with those council leaders on Orkney. The producer was Sam Chantarasak with production assistance from Oliver Adamson. The executive producers today were James Shield and Kate Ford and sound design was by Hannah Varrell. If you can, please leave us a review, hopefully a nice one. It will help other people find us. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>